0: All uh... right.
1: Welcome to the last show of 2020. Um, you're listening to A View from the Ditch at our new slot, 5.30pm on a Saturday. I'm James Larkin and as usual I'm joined by William Dalton. How are you doing, William? Doing well now. We've been workshopping that intro for uh, days now. Yeah. Even got some people in the house involved.
2: Yeah, there were mixed uh, views. What? About it. I think it's
1: yeah, they were mixed in like great to good.
2: No, I think it's only fair to say that not everyone approved. Approved? Uh,
1: um, some people do. well look I suppose some people aren't appreciated in their own time you know geniuses uh,
2: that's true yeah
1: like myself Bach Bach what are you Van Gough, yeah. okay anyway uh, we've got a bumper episode in store for y'all two major interviews conducted by our uh, interrogator Dalton and yeah. uh, on two quite diverse topics kind of
2: yeah two really good guests
1: yeah you're in for a treat but before we get to our uh, major guests uh Anything that's been uh, rustling your feathers the last few days with
2: um, I don't know about that. Major stories, uh, obviously, a row in the Green Party over CETA and the investor court system, which we're going to speak about on the programme, I think, in, in a fair bit of detail in the near future. So and we're going to leave that for today. There was also just this... Um, and what I thought was an interesting story, you had uh, Veradka writing an op-ed in the the Irish Daily Mail... Um, about, you know, the, under the headline, the decade of centenaries has lost its way, uh, and he was talking about how the, there's a profound difference between the IRA of a hundred years ago, and the Provisional IRA in relation to Brian Stanley's tweet, which which I, I think he's correct in that, but I just thought it was funny. Then the same week, the Finnegale Twitter account made a tweet commemorating uh, General uh, Richard Mulcahy, who's the, their former leader, who. Uh, is best known, of course, for he was Minister for Defence in the Free State during the Civil War. And under the emergency powers, martial law essentially, 77 Republican prisoners were executed uh, in the space of 10 months. And, you know, when you talk about glorifying violence, like, it's just funny. Like, you know, the the in the uh, inter party government in 1948, Clan and Publica refused to have him as Taoiseach, even though he was leader of Fine Gael, because of that. And instead, the the compromise candidate was John A. Costello, who, as Brendan O'Hare pointed out, had essentially endorsed fascism in the 30s.
1: Also, if we're going to talk about losing our way in the decade of centenary, we should perhaps uh, do a review of the year and recall one of the major political scandals, which was when Vina Gael tried to commemorate the black and tans.
2: That's right. The gentle black and tan.
1: Which essentially, you know, was the major turning point in the election.
2: Uh, I think it was a big factor, yes. For, for, for a lot of voters
1: so, but I assume he forgot to mention that and uh, I assume that's not what he meant when we, he said we were losing our way
2: yeah I have to say I didn't read the, the, the op-ed itself I read quotations from it in, our, in an Irish Times article but uh, I just wanted to bring up yeah, mention Dick Mulcahy and the, who he was because former IRA Chief of Staff before all that of course
1: well uh, I he, just
2: thought it was interesting moving on
1: from uh, Dick we have our very interesting interview with Mary Humphreys, a good friend of the show. Uh, do you want to give us a brief background about Mary before we
2: go to the interview, William? Yes, Ma- Mary was involved in Fianna Fáil in Athlone uh, many years ago before standing, before breaking with them and standing as an independent candidate in the general election of 92. And we just chatted her, to chatted her about the issues that got her into politics, what it was like standing as an independent back then. And uh, yeah, I think we had a really interesting chat. I'm looking forward to hearing it again.
0: The ideal Ireland that we would have, the Ireland that we dreamed of, would be the home of a people who valued material wealth only as a basis for right living. Of a people who, satisfied with frugal comfort, devoted their leisure to the things of the spirit,
2: Money may be a comfort now, but it was also money that led to his downfall, when he was unable to explain the sources of large sums of cash.
3: He offered famously uh, the explanation that he had won some money uh, on the horses to account for uh, for one lodgment. The tribunal has rejected that. To try and convince people that he was in one of the horses, As long as I've known Bertie. I never, never, never saw him in a betting shop in my life. I thought he knows nothing about horses. You always have to be honest with yourself in life. Uh, You always have to be honest if you ever want to achieve something. And sometimes, when you look in the mirror, it's not nice to be honest to yourself because you get a fright and you don't like what you see in the mirror. If you tell half truths, if you conceal the facts, if you distort the reality, if you paint a picture that isn't the reality, then you fool yourself. You fool your people.
2: So we're very pleased to be joined now by a friend of the programme, Mary Humphreys, who stood as an independent candidate in the Westmead constituency in the 1992 general election. Uh, thanks for coming on the programme, Mary.
4: Thank you. We're delighted to be here.
2: Um, if you could tell us a little bit about what your own political background would have been prior to 1992.
4: Well, I came from, I suppose, a very traditional background in that my father had been involved in the War of Independence. Uh, he was an elderly father when he got married, I suppose, an elderly man when he got married, so that uh, I, would have, I would have been first generation, really, after that period. And was steeped, really, in Fianna Fáil, de Valera, and uh, even the politics of the Civil War, um, while, obviously, it was an appalling time, the atrocities were dreadful. I suppose the ideal was that a united Ireland... Um, was what was needed and wanted, and uh, I grew up with that, and, and, and adhered to it greatly.
2: Right, and then what about the particular issues uh, that led to you, your own entry into into the fray?
4: Yeah, I suppose um, I was teaching in Athlone at the time, and I had joined a common, actually, in Athlone, uh, and it was a lovely group of people. I mean, they were so welcoming, and I really enjoyed the meetings, and. Um, it was more really just general discussion. We never challenged very much, or I might be the only girl or woman there at the time. Mm. Um, and then in 1988, an issue arose around the dump uh, in Athlone because it actually was built adjoining the River Shannon um, near the near the weir wall in Athlone, and a lot of the effluent was actually seeping into the river. It was a nice sore, and uh, the county council and the government at the time didn't want to know about it. So we launched a campaign. A group of us and uh, it was an environmental, really, issue. And Mm. we, in the end of the day, we went to Europe. We took the case to Europe because local government and government didn't want to know about it. So the European Commission um, instructed the Irish government to uh, immediately dissolve the dump and move it to an inland location to a proper site. So that took the bones, I suppose, of two or three years. So by 1991, um, having put my foot in the water, I enjoyed really just discussing issues, meeting people, uh, and getting feedback um, and feeling I could do something possibly for my own local area, the town of Athlone. Right, and then and the, the election
2: was called. Uh, people remember late ninety two. The the Fall PD's government had dissolved over the beef tribunal.
4: That's correct. That's correct. Um, and Albert Reynolds had gone to the country.
2: That's right. And and uh, what so what was it like campaigning as an independent?
4: Well, I suppose just to fill you in and lead up to that, my first daughter was born. Eve was born at the end of June of nineteen ninety-two, right. and uh, while that was wonderful, and I, you know, wonderful to have to have her and all the rest, but then the opportunity came in uh, November because, having attended various common meetings, I realised that. Uh, there would never be an opportunity for an outsider or a person of lesser worth, if you like, to put their, head, put their name forward. And at that point, I was imbibed, really, with this whole sense of changing the environment, doing something for the environment, doing something for small farmers, uh, concerned, really, with the way education was going in the Midlands. And uh, with a group of like-minded friends, um, I decided that I would launch my campaign. Now, it came as a huge blow to Fianna Fáil. They were very insulted and very were very uh, unwilling to accept the fact that I had decided to go it alone. Uh, so when it came to actually uh, going on the canvas, the worst part of it was that a lot of the locals actually chastised me yes. for the fact that I uh, was a Fennofowler at heart. That my parents and my father particularly had benefited from Fennofowler, which couldn't be further from the truth. Right. But uh, so all kinds of slurs were thrown at me at doors, doorsteps, especially from the older generation of Fennofowler. Okay. But aside from that, there was a whole new generation and possibly people who come into the town over the years uh, and canvassing them with with some friends of mine, I found that they were very open to the idea of a woman. The fact that a woman might and somebody that was a local, if you like. So there was great enthusiasm around that um, and I was heartened really. I mean, we had a number of fundraisers and people were absolutely fantastic. The teachers I taught with were wonderful, whether they agreed with me or not, they all came and supported all the gigs we had. Um, the big disadvantage for me, I suppose, was that I didn't get too much of Westmeath in the sense that I would forage, foray out to Del- Delvin or to F- Clonmelan or various places, but they wouldn't really have known me. So yes. th- that's the dis- difficulty. So I suppose I could see that, that that was never going to be a-, a runner, that, I mean, OK, my name would be known, but unless somebody just threw me an extra vote at the end of the list, uh, it wasn't going to impact very much.
2: I see, but but of course, even still today, it's the case that, Constituencies like that are very divided geographically. You know, Athlone yes. candidates get all their votes from Athlone, and, and Mullingar candidates
4: yes. tend to get
2: all their votes from around there.
4: That is absolutely so. I mean, even Mullingar, although no, it's amazing, actually, I can remember my highlight really was. Going to Mullingar, handing in my nomination papers, um, you know, being photographed with even my arms, <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> and then going back, you know, every weekend to canvas in Mullingar and it was a lovely place to canvass. People were absolutely so welcoming. I mean, they wouldn't, nobody would say to you, well, why are you doing this or who do you think you are? Mm. It was a question of fair dues to you and, um, yeah. you know, we we'll give you a vote. So I thoroughly enjoyed and all my extended family and beyond that. Would come down to, to canvas for me, and Mullingar really was an amazing place. Uh, I couldn't say, but that they were extremely open to somebody new coming on the scene. Right, more so than Athlone. More so than Athlone, absolutely. But maybe would it be that there was, a, there was a, a more of an of an influx of people from outside, or was it that in Athlone you had a very traditional Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael stronghold, and right. people belonged to either of those, and there was nothing else beyond that much.
2: Right, and and then of course prior to that there were very, and, and for most of the history of the state, there, uh, there were very few women in Irish politics. Like I yes. uh, pulled up a, a figure there that by 1992, there had only been 44 different women TDs in the whole history of the state. Right. And 92, I think, was a record at the time for the number of women elected. Yes. So what? So you felt there was um, a positive attitude out there to a woman There standing. was.
4: It didn't actually... It, I, I wasn't aware that... Kind of, I was, I was a woman running, so to speak. Yeah. It was more the issues, and it was more what you stood for, and so I have to say it didn't. It that didn't impact that. When the I was looking on, I suppose I realised that uh, most of my supporters were women, possibly, and most of my canvassers were women, and a lot of the issues maybe that I was espousing at the time might be just women's issues, um, and I suppose it was just the beginning of the of the evolution of change whereby women then began to see that they could possibly become candidates and there was a likelihood that they could be elected.
2: Yes, and, and and of course a couple of years before that you had Mary, Mary Robinson's election as president. Yes, um,
4: that, that, absolutely, that was, that, was, that was the changing. Um, that was the point, I suppose, at which the change was brought about and that women could see that actually this could become a reality, even though I suppose she had a high profile herself being Senior council and all of that, and all the issues that she had taken on over the years in the European uh, Council and that. But that said, I mean, she was certainly the springboard from which other changes came.
2: Mm. And so, what were some of the some of the other issues that you you campaigned on?
4: Yeah. Um, now a, a lot. Of, I know that abortion came up at the time, and uh, I, for one, um, was was you know anti-abortion and all the rest at that stage yeah. but as I went through you know when you canvas people and you realize that people have stories and they have heartfelt stories and sadnesses you know in a sense it was a great education for me uh to see that there that there are so many different sides of the coin and uh in that sense there might have been one or two people who said well I'll have nothing to do with you if you're not pro-abortion uh so it was a little I found that was the one issue that I found did divide people yes um so, but as the election came, to the point of the election, I found that I was myself less judgmental, that I actually understood where people were coming from if they said they needed it and wanted it. And I felt at that stage it would come eventually, that the change would come. So that's something I learned in the course of the discussion.
2: That's very interesting. And of course, that the background was that the the referenda, the three referenda and abortion were on the ballot that day. Yeah, that's right. So it was definitely, and the X case Yes, uh, earlier was, that year,
4: it was very much an issue. It was very much and for the young, I suppose, it, it, Muslim women would have found that the change that they were saying that change was needed. And uh, but I both the hold of the Catholic Church and the influence of the Catholic Church was still very strong. And uh, that was 92, remember, so it was, you know, it would take another 20 years before any sort of change would be affected.
2: Yeah, it, it was also something of a watershed election in the sense that both Fianna Fall and Fine Gael lost quite a lot of votes. And there was this huge surge to Labour under Dick Spring. Um, that's this, right. In, in, in your own constituency, Westmeath, there was the first ever Labour candidate elected, Willie Penrose. Yeah,
4: Willie Penrose, absolutely. He comes from a big family. I think, it's, is, it ter- is it on Terman Barry? i so sure. I know Ballin it's not the yeah. And he, I mean, it was so wonderful the day he was elected, like the whole family were there and hoisting him up on the shoulders and all his big brothers, and it was just wonderful to see. But my little input into that was that the last of my, last batch of my transferable votes were, I suppose, expected to go to Henry Abbott because of my filofall background. But instead of that, they went to Willie. And, uh, you know, against all the odds, Willie was elected. I think there was even a recount demanded at that point. But it was was in that sense I should say to myself, well, you know, I did bring about some change (laughs) (laughs) in that there was a Labour candidate uh, elected for Westmeath, which uh, continued to be so for a long number of elections afterwards. He
2: did. Yeah, he was a huge vote-getter, Willie, after that. Yeah. That's very interesting, though, that your transfers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's that, That's sort of one of the, um, you know, interesting aspects of our electoral system is that the transfers don't often don't go where yes. you might think they will.
4: Absolutely, and you know, with the PR system, you know, I let's say in, if in school I would have gone through it with the girls or whatever in in, in school, and they'd all say to me, they'd "Be saying, well, why can't you just vote for whoever you want and leave it at that?" And then you're trying to explain to them that every vote that you cast can impact on somebody along the way you know you never know what it's going to be but why not use up all of your options absolutely and uh, and i think it's, it's, still, it's still the test of time it's been a wonderful system for us and enabled a lot of outsiders to get in
2: i think so there sometimes although, although the debate doesn't seem to come up in a while but like um, yeah people sometimes criticize it but i i, I think it's quite a good system
4: I do in comparison with the British system where where you would just have first past the post. And and it does allow, the only drawback might be the proliferation of small parties and who am I to say it'd be an independent, (laughs) but all of that where you've got a, you know, I mean, I think in my, the time I ran, there were 11 different Groups, um, including independents, yeah. on the ballot paper. So I mean, it's probably extended well beyond that. So it does lead to fracture to a fracturing of the vote somewhat. Yeah. But then on the other hand, I mean coalitions are representative of the people, and they we're getting used to working them now at the moment, and and yeah, that's good.
2: Yes, and that, well, I, but looking at it, you did. You know, I would have to say quite well for an independent. Um, you got more than two percent of first preferences at a time when you know more recently there have been a lot of independents around the country elected yeah. you know from the kind of some as they say the Fianna Fáil gene pool or the Fine okay. gene pool but at that, that time it wasn't as common.
4: No it wasn't and I mean even to try and say that you're an independent it was so hard to get people to believe that you actually were that. They'd say, but sure, you were Fianna Fall a week ago and now you're independent today. <laughs> um, not realising that you would have been, you know, ruminating on it for a long period of time. You know, you had all of these Maastricht treaties and you had all the other European issues that came in that uh, I would have found myself at variance with Fianna Fall over. Uh, so it was something that was, you know, evolving. And, but the funny part was to be accepted as an independent uh, was difficult. Yes. Uh, even though we now know that a number of them they have a great Im- impact in the doll at present and have their own grouping, which is yes. And
2: different. nowadays, it's almost it got to the point where it, it's it's. You know, it has an appeal, running as an independent yeah. that you're not party, part uh, member of one of the traditional parties.
4: Yeah, that's just it. And I, you know, looking at parties, there's so much of this. You know, uh, keeping to the whip and and having to toe the line and having to. I know I'm not that kind of person, so, I mean, while at the local level I might manage it for a while, <laughs> I don't think beyond that that I could trust myself to do what would be right, you know, it's... it's um, And yet I know the party system is probably the most effective uh, within within politics, so to speak, as Basil Chubb would say, that's the way it is. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, I think it just gives a rise to... I mean, some mavericks, I suppose, which have always been very interesting, what's um, common thinking of... Luke Ming Fannigan, That's for instance, right, yeah. and people yeah. like that, um, who've made their yes own impact.
2: Yes, he well, he very much got into politics uh, through through local issues. He did, yeah. And and um, what what would you say overall? You learn from the whole experience, and what have, what have you taken with you?
4: Um from what I've learned really is that uh, it would be most important, I suppose, to have a good support group around you. Uh you know, it, it, it seems to have a good organization. Now, I was very lucky in that year, my husband was just incredible in terms of, of putting a structure and an organization together. Right. Um the demands on your time are extraordinary. Mm. Uh the energy and that that's needed and the you know it's just so intense for those two or three weeks. Uh that you probably and being an independent, sometimes we opt into it too quickly, without time maybe to dwell on it and to plan a bit better than you know than we had done or whatever, and then afterwards you're very much left alone in that, it's all over and then you're just forgotten and unless you have a good family to support you, it's almost like it's such an anti climax. It's it's a difficult place to be in.
2: Yes, and I, and and after ninety two, like you would look at that result and say. You didn't get in, but it, it was a fairly encouraging um, result. You got a fair bit of support. Did you think of, of standing again after that?
4: Yeah. Now, I was approached by a number of political parties, believe it or not, to, if I wanted to, to, you know, to stand. and uh, But I liked that. It was all about party politics, and I really wasn't going to go there at that stage. And as it happened, then we were moving to Dublin, so my base had changed completely uh, so I would be, I, I, you know, be leaving a, ha- leaving behind the base that I had built up over the right. years. So that was the difficulty. Even though I mean, I just am passionate about politics, love everything about it, and um, and you know, I always wish I maybe would have had a better, a second chance at it. But I'm lucky to have had the one, even and and, and you know, just something to show for it maybe at the end of the day.
2: And uh, I wonder if you could, if you could just finish up by talking about maybe some of your thoughts on the current political scene. Uh, coalition and yeah. uh, the rise of Sinn Féin I suppose?
4: Well I was just looking at the figures there for Sinn Féin in 92 and uh, Gerry Adams none of, none of them were elected there was, 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 was nobody right. returned to the Dáil and I have to say I mean I would say I'm a Republican and um, I would say that I do believe in a United Ireland um, it's something that I would aspire to it's something that I would feel as a country we should be working towards obviously uh, by dialogue and all of that but it's not something we can, you know, leave, leave on. I think Fianna Fáil at the moment are afraid to say what they are, who they are, what they believe in. And, and they really are not for me anymore. It was Varadkar and Finnegale, I mean, at least they have stood up and they have done well in terms of the COVID and he's shown leadership. And I know Eamon Ryan from the Green Party and uh, he's an exceptionally nice person. But again, I think the structure doesn't seem to be working well for him and there's a lot of division within. So mm. I'm a bit afraid that he might lose out the two bigger parties. That's always the danger that the smaller entity will lose out. Indeed. You know. But that said, I think it could could I mean even Leon Martin's faux pas yesterday talking about the bailout. That's right. That it wasn't a bailout. I mean, it's caused such controversy. And I thought, you know, we really don't need this at this point. You know, yeah. a teaching of the country making a mistake like that is is beyond belief, really. So look, it's 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 we are with we are with coalitions. They are going to continue, and uh, I don't see anything other than that in the near future.
2: Indeed, well, Mary. Thanks, really for talking to us.
4: You're very welcome, and uh, I hope um, I didn't make too many footpaths along the no, way. Not at all. Not at
1: all. <gasps> did you enjoy that interview? I certainly did. Yes, I very much enjoyed it because you know I've known Mary for maybe five years now, and knew almost nothing about that part of her life. It, it's funny for us because it's, you know we've known Mary for maybe four or five years, but it's quite possible that our parents. Well no, my parents definitely voted in that election in I'll have to ask them uh, you know if they remember like, maybe they do remember on the ballot. Maybe they got her or she got, may- maybe yeah. she they got uh, or she got hit their number one one, you know. And your parents I imagine were there as well.
2: Yes, they Could
1: have even been cannabis by her. It's certainly possible,
2: yeah, although
1: And by the baby Neve, huh? The Baba. <laughs> Indeed. Uh but it was a very interesting time as well by the sounds of it and it would have been very interesting I would have been interested to know what parties were approaching her like I yeah I didn't th- ask actually I wonder if that still happened that independence like essentially parties try to snap up independence
2: yeah or uh, members of the social democrats in the case of uh, Stephen Donnelly
1: or the social democrats try to snap up there was talk of Hazel Chew going to the social democrats was there?
2: yeah where Where did you hear this now? that's the first time
1: here she, she uh, you know non-denial denial I think was what happened. Failed to deny. Jesus. I the rumors I that she that. might join. I, that would be. Um,
2: sorry, that would be, very uh, explosive.
1: But she's now in the Mary now lives in the People's Republic of Dublin South Central.
2: Mary Humphreys. That's right. So perhaps she has a better chance uh, here. Oh, I see. Of being elected. Yeah. Then yes, then, Conservative Westmeath of the early nineties. Westmead was it Westmead Longford back then. No, actually, at that time, Westmeath was a single constituency with three Take seats. Take me, um, me back. Well, Well, I think three seats under PRS TV is not a good idea, actually. Really? Yeah, but uh, that's a discussion for perhaps another day and well, time. Maybe or maybe not. Or never. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so, then before we get into the second interview, uh, any issues of the week that you wanted to chat about?
2: Yeah, so the obvious one that. Uh, caused a lot of laughter and and uh, mockery of the Taoiseach was his denying that the bailout took place. Um, during a debate, an exchange with Richard Boyd Barrett. Uh, in the doll about the Debenhams workers, you know he was accusing Richard Boyd Barrett of proposing overly simplistic solutions, and you know there are no easy answers. And. Uh, well, Richard is... said. Richard said, well, there were for the banks, and uh, <laughs> at which point Martin said the the banks were not bailed out he said quote that is not a popular thing to say and well he was right about that
1: oh he's very right mark
2: vardker subsequently said that the Taoiseach misspoke but martin's spokeswoman said defended him and said well he was right to say that shareholders were not bailed out um but to say that he misspoke doesn't seem quite accurate because he he it wasn't a slip of the tongue if you if you see the clip you know it was he was quite deliberate mm. and i think it's been part of a recent pattern of, of Maybe not a recent pattern, but Martin he he he's quite a tetchy leader. His whole affect in the dial. Um,
1: he yeah, usually adopts that approach for Sinn Fein exclusively. Well, Anne Bradker used to have quite tetchy exchanges with him.
2: Yeah, but he he's been having a, a pop at the left uh, this week in particular. There was a, another exchange with Mick Barry on Tuesday where he described him as a populist. Uh, he said described his his words about the Devon's workers as a as a an extraordinary distortion. And then our own Robert Troy got in on the act, huh? Junior Minister Robert Troy, yes, who who said that accused McBarry of of um, disgracefully misleading the Debenhams workers, and I, and yes, I was able to put that to our guest today, Michelle Gavin, from the Waterford, formerly of the Waterford Debenhams store, because I thought, yeah, and and well, let's just say she has a different view. But do you think it's a
1: pattern, like a new pattern of attacking the left? Like, I don't remember them going after uh, the the far left as much as as this. It's certainly Sinn Féin, and certainly recently Sinn Féin, but people for profit, usually they just leave them be and let them say what they want to say.
2: Um, well, you could argue, yes, they're not enough of an electoral threat for F- Fianna Fall for to worry about, but, yeah, maybe, does it mark a, a shift in, in tactics I don't know is that something to do with the new press secretary oh the fella from the sun huh the current bun um, who knows
1: well I'm sure we can watch and see
2: yes watch the space but I don't think I think it ultimately backfired on Martin
1: this week oh yeah like it was going crazy on Twitter although you know Twitter is a bit of a left uh, bubble but Genie Mac well
2: I think that depends on who you follow I mean
1: True, but yeah, maybe it's laughable for me, but yeah, even like you know, centrist journalists were were laughing at the idea that it wasn't uh, a bailout, and then you know I saw people take you know quote after quote after quote from Michael Martin. That's right. Who described it as a bailout himself?
2: Well, it's particularly egregious because he was in government at the time, and he spent the last ten years trying to sanitize Fianna Fall's reputation and apologising for the uh, for their mismanagement of the economy. And for them, for him, then to stand up as T. Shook in the door and say it wasn't a bailout.
1: Yeah, it seemed like it. It was unnecessary to drag that up for from his own point of view.
2: Yes, an unforced error, you might say. Yeah. Well, it brings us nicely on to our second interview. Yeah. Really,
1: you're really knocking them out today, huh? Yeah. Well,
2: we were lucky enough to to talk to Michelle Gavin. The context, um, uh, she was w- shop steward in the, in the Waterford-Debenhams uh, store and has been on the picket for the, the last, uh, it's over 250 days now they've been on strike. Uh, oh God. She, she was also involved in the, the occupation of the waterford debenham store. They, they were referred to as the Dacia Five. And we spoke to her in the context of, on Tuesday night, you had these proposals from the mediator, Kevin Foley, that... Mediating
1: be, between Debenhams uh, workers and uh, KPMG, the liquidator like of that, Debenhams.
2: That's right, and that the, the proposal would be that the, you know they they obviously wouldn't get the redundancy package they've been campaigning for all along the two plus two two weeks statutory plus two weeks um, from the company which they were uh, promised as part of a collective agreement in twenty sixteen that they wouldn't get that what they would get instead was a three uh, three million euro. Um, and I hate this word upskilling. Um, fund. Fund, um, which I think a lot of the workers, uh, including our guest today, really felt was not only inadequate but but insulting. Well, I'm really excited to hear from Michelle. Let's go for it. So we're joined now by Michelle Gavin, formerly of the Waterford store. Uh, Debenhams, formerly Roaches Stores, uh, who was informed in April after a 27 years service uh, by a generic email that her, her job had gone. And uh, she's the uh, shop steward in, in the Waterford store. Um, thanks a million for joining us, Michelle. Thanks very much for
3: having me.
2: So I wonder if you could tell us about what, what that was like in, uh, in April when, when you got that, that email or when you found out? Well, it was a big shock.
3: Um, we couldn't believe it because we had closed on the 23rd of March because of the pandemic. So we were led to believe that we would be reopening and that we were doing okay. We knew at that point that England had gone into administration, but we were told we were okay. So we went with that. And on the 9th of April, when we got that generic email, I suppose we all we were shocked. Uh, I think the callous way they did it was very hard for us you know after all the loyal service we had given and we just sent a generic email and told you you're going into liquidation and your job is gone and that was it you know so it wasn't nice I have to be honest with you we were shocked took a few weeks I suppose to sink in that uh, we no longer had our jobs and you know we're in the middle of this pandemic which we were trying to cope with as well um, I suppose we were the first casualties of it, so, um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't nice at all.
2: No, I, uh, and then if you could tell us about the beginning then of of the uh, of the strike of, of the picket and how how that all came about.
3: Well, I suppose um, at the very beginning, um, when we heard, you know, the union had to be contacted, or they contacted us, being the job stewards and that. So then, um. We had to decide what we were going to do, so that's the first ballot that was taken for to see did people want to strike. So that was unanimously accepted. You know, people out of um I think there was um eight hundred and something people voted on that, and out of that ninety seven percent, uh, voted for the strike. So that's where that came about. So we started manning our pickets from there, and um, you know um to be put rotas together, we got people that were interested, you know, anyone. Now, not everybody, unfortunately, took part, even from the word go. I found that a bit strange, I'll be honest with you, when 97% of people voted to strike and didn't really take any active part in it. Um, It was a bit strange for me to understand, but like people have to do what they feel is best for them. But um, I, I wasn't sure, did they understand what a strike meant then? because if you vote for a strike that's what you're supposed to do take part in it so there was a group of us yeah we got together and as i said being the shop steward i suppose i organized the rotas and that part of it so that we could you know we all most people gave what they would be available to do like because we have um our lives to live as well in all of this you know our, our lives are still going on the same things are still happening to us and we're still trying to cope with all the things. So um it just started from there and um we we, we just would do shifts um uh, three people at a time um you know throughout the day and then that progressed into the evening so um we, we would be there most of the day and night, you know what I mean? Um I suppose the stock was our asset, that's what we were trying to protect. Yeah. And uh, so that's why we decided to, you know.
2: And so, of course, the background to that was that there was this 2016 collective agreement uh, where um, you were entitled to uh, two weeks uh, per year of service on top of the statutory two weeks.
3: Yeah.
2: And then all of a sudden the liquidator KPMG is saying that no longer applies.
3: Well, that was said um, there by the mediator that that no longer applies. I find that very strange. But that's what was negotiated. That was our negotiated package at that yeah. time, uh, when we came out of that examinership. So anybody that, you know, was made redundant after that, they would get that package. That's what we felt, and that's what we felt we were entitled to. You know, for 20 years, 27 years service, I yeah. felt I deserved that. Absolutely. You know what I mean?
2: When did it become apparent that that agreement wasn't going to be honoured?
3: Well, on Tuesday night.
2: <laughs> oh, of course. But, but I mean, say earlier on that that was what the liquidators were kind of saying it weren't they
3: no the liquidators didn't say that and um, it wouldn't what they were saying is they were liquidators and they had to liquidate the company hmm. you know and they have to do that within the law and the law didn't allow for um, enhanced packages as they put it so I that's see. where their perspective was coming from it wasn't that they were saying you know what i mean um that it wasn't um to be recognized or whatever, but they can't pay it because they have to act within the law. I so see. that's what they Yeah, that's where that came from from the liquidator.
2: I see, yes. And if you could tell us as well, um there was an there was an actual uh, occupation of the store down in Waterford that you that you were involved in. If you could tell us a little bit about yeah. that.
3: Well I suppose um it was in I think it was I can't remember how long ago it was, it was around September, I think we did it, and it just felt we needed, um, you know, to push the focus, you know, we've been there quite a while, and uh, just keep things in in focus for the media and for everyone, you know, that we were still there, we were still struggling, we were still standing up for ourselves, we were still fighting for our rights, so we felt it would help, so we decided if an opportunity came about, um, we would take it, and that's what we did. So that was it. And um, we entered the store on that Monday morning and we stayed there till Friday. So the five of us, the day of five, as we're known. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and had you ever been involved in anything like that before?
3: Never. I, I like, as I said, I was long service. and We were yeah. very lucky, I suppose. And I suppose you never kind of thought about it. But like I worked there for 27 years. I was never in a position where we were even ever, ever were on strike before. Do you know what I mean? So we were lucky like we all had uh, secure permanent jobs as we thought, and uh, so never had the need to be involved in anything. You know, I've never had to even ever pick it before, you know, or or stand outside on a strike. It was never necessary. We were always able to work out and negotiate what we needed to do when things were changing, I suppose, over the years, Um, you know what I mean? So no, I never, never had. Never had the need, to, I suppose.
2: <laughs> right. So the last nine months have been a very different experience then.
3: Yeah, it's totally different. You know what I mean? Um, up to March, I had a permanent full-time job. And then on the 9th of April, my life I knew it was changed completely. Yep. You know, yeah, it was like when you're working for a company between Roaches and Ebenhams for that length of time, your whole life revolves around it. Like you're working full-time. And that is your life, do you know what I mean? To a degree. Like we have our bits at home and our bits outside, but it does uh, make up a, a large part of your life. And um, so, yeah, that was very difficult, you know what I mean? It just changed your life overnight, really. The positives, I suppose, um, for us, we, we've come together as a great little team, those that are there, you know, and we are a great bunch of people, I think and they become very tight and, um, you know, we're there for each other and it's great to have that, you know. So, um, also the people, the public, you know, the support they give you and the solidarity they show you, like, that's brilliant as well, you know. And also even a lot of former workers, like, you know, we have a lot of the old glass factory people because they went through this, going back some time ago, you know, they had that big issue when their place closed and their pensions, they had all this. And they're great to come along and give you support. And a lot of the other unions, you know, we've had all of that. So that's fantastic. Like, it really does uh, boost your morale, you know, because sometimes you're there, because it's going on so long, you say, to yourself, God, what am I doing to myself? You know what I mean? And um, But it does boost your morale, I have to be honest with you. And where we are, we're at the back of our store, like um, where the loading bay is. So it's kind of a just... A small little street but opposite and um, there's um, a home for older people and they're fantastic like they give us some boost you know what i mean and they're all older and they would have been around times where there would have been maybe plenty of strikes do you know what i mean and they believe like you stand up for yourself and they, was, they tell you how proud they are you know and they chat to us every day and all of those things are very positive and it's lovely You know what I mean? They're great even if when we'd be in there in the evening time, they'd let you go in to go to the toilet and things like that. Do you know what I mean? So people are fantastic in that regard. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe this is the first time in a long time um, a strike of this magnitude has happened. So I suppose you get a lot of people behind you, you know, for that because people do feel you have to stand up for yourself. You know what I mean? And they can see us doing this. So I think that boosts people, you know?
0: Mm.
3: I think the negative part is it's the fact that we're there so long and you wonder like is it ever going to end you know you're hopeful that we would have achieved something and I suppose Tuesday was the lowest point for us when kind of the government made it very clear that they weren't willing and they weren't on our side even though we had been told numerous times that they were
2: So if I could just ask you about that obviously Tuesday night news came out that uh, the mediator Kevin Foley had recommended no uh, additional redundancy on top of the statutory minimum, but instead this 3 million um, training fund. Um,
3: yeah.
2: What, uh, what how, how did you and, and your colleagues uh, react when you, when you heard about that?
3: Well, I was just shocked, to be honest with you. Um, I kind of felt I had listened to the exchange between Mick Barry and Micheál Martin earlier that day. And just the way me Hall Martin spoke back to, me, uh, to McBarry, I kind of knew. Do you know, I kind of got an impression that they're not going to do anything for us. Do you know, here we are having a meeting this evening. And so um, I actually was shocked. And to be honest with you, more than shocked, just disgusted, shocked, to be honest. I was actually disgusted. You know, um, the government appointed a mediator and asked him, to try and broker a deal between three sections that was us that was the liquidator and it was the government and then in my opinion took every power away from him and gave him no option they didn't give him the support he needed you know kevin foley did the best he could do under the circumstances with what he was given but it was the government quite clearly where the ones were not willing to come on board, so to speak. So I have to say, I feel extremely left down by my government at this point in time. And I feel they're the only ones that have left us down, apart from Debenhams. I feel they left us down as badly as Debenhams did, you know. Um, To offer us 3 million to upskill for career breaks or to to career guidance or whatever is an insult to me. Um, I'm 27 years working. I am skilled, I don't need to upskill, and that's not being smart or anything, I am a skilled worker, over the years working, we had to adapt and change many times, and I did that, I went off when we started becoming computerised in our business, and I did my ECDL courses, and I did my SAGE account courses, and I did loads of other courses, you know, we are a very skilled workforce, So to be given a 3 million fund to tell you to upskill. You know what I mean? I feel that's so insulting. It's actually unbelievable. You know, it's just unbelievable. And I firmly believe that there was a way to do it. Only the willingness wasn't there. And that's just my belief. You know what I mean? Every problem has a solution if you're willing to find it. And that's what we asked him. I was on a WebEx meeting with Hall Martin, going back some time ago, and we asked him, and he told us the willingness was there, but they had confines. We understood that, and it wasn't an easy thing to do, but they were willing to look. So I don't feel they were. And um, you know, if you want to find a solution, you can, and there's many ways you can do it. I understand about their precedent, you um, know what I mean, but that could have been looked at, you know what I mean? They can ring fence many things when it suits them. They can push through when it suits them, you know what I mean? So that's all we asked for.
2: Mm. Yeah, and of course, yes, the government are saying, I mean, Micheal Martin just the other day, he said that they've done everything in their power, that they're the only ones who have stepped up and, and paid the statutory redundancy. Um, And he, he was, there was, as you mentioned, the exchange with Mick Barry, you know, he's been he and other government ministers have sort of attacked TDs like Barry who've been very supportive of the workers as if they were kind of, um, you know, leading the workers up the garden path, which sort of struck me as a bit of a strange argument, kind of condescending uh, to to you in, uh, you know, and it's sort of denying your own agency in demanding what what you're entitled to. Yeah, no, I agree with you
3: there. I feel the only people led us up the garden path were the government. Do you know what I mean? I just, like, we had great support from the likes of Mick Barry and other TDs and um, I think they've been champion. So if they want to attack them, fair enough. But uh, I think Sleem Hall-Martin led us up the garden path. Nobody else. Uh, Leo Ragger as well had a go of um, Mick Barry saying that uh, we should really listen to our union and not to others, you know, But maybe he should have listened to our union. We had many meetings with him. The union put our case to Leo Vradkar and Michal Martin, but they didn't listen to our union. So I don't know what he's on about, to be honest with you. You know, Um, so I think that's, again, that's just uh, rude and um, disrespectful of us, you know, to be honest with you.
2: Mm. Yes, I I think a lot of people would agree. And so, what happens next? I wonder. You've got these proposals um, from Kevin Foley. Uh, there has to be a ballot of workers on those now, doesn't there?
3: There does, yeah. There does, yeah. That's they've started the process of that, but you know that will have to be a postal vote because of the um, the pandemic we're still in, and um, so that will take place over the next few weeks. So we're just to wait and see what happens there. But I, I, I couldn't see how uh, three million funds that's set aside for people uh, that already have availed of training because all that training is there. You know, it's there for people that have been made unemployed. A lot of the staff have already availed of it. You know, I even availed of a couple of courses myself at the beginning. So that training is there if you want it. Do you know what I mean? To avail of it. So uh, to set aside uh, a 3 million fund for that that is already there, I, I said, it actually, I, I just feel total disbelief in it. Like I, I don't understand the logic behind it, to be honest. Um, also, uh, a lot of us are older, you know, and um, might necessarily want top skill. And certainly don't need career guidance, you know what I mean? Um, Might even want to consider um, starting my own business. So I don't think they factored that into it either, you know, that. um, So I just believe, I just feel we're being offered a 3 million fund that may not even be utilised. And as well as that, we haven't even been told what way that's going to be done. So you're being asked to vote on something kind of blind if you know what I mean, we haven't been given the breakdown of that 3 million fund. We haven't been told who can access it, what you can access it for, what way it'll work. So you're kind of voting on something when you don't even have the the, the, the proper logistics of it, of what way it will actually function. So that, that I find strange in itself, you know.
2: Mm. Yes, and, and of course, Kevin Foley himself said that, you know, he acknowledged that the offer... You know d- fell short of, of the, the core demand which which was for the the two plus two the the redundancy yeah. agreement um and so in the meantime though the pickets are continuing
3: yeah the pickets are continuing now there is a truce there you know that um kevin foley did um, have agreed with the liquidator so the liquidator have given and um, um, have said that they won't go into any of the stores until the ballot takes place. So that makes it a little bit easier. So we're not doing what we were. So, and it does give people a little break coming up to Christmas. And I feel we deserve it and we need it because it's been full on since April, like and it is hard because I can assure you when we started out in April, I genuinely, genuinely didn't think I'd be there in December to be honest, you know? And um, so I think all of us need that. our headspace as well as anything else you know because as i said to you earlier we are trying to cope with this pandemic as well as everybody else we're also trying to cope with our normal lives you know we all have things that are happening in our lives that we're trying to cope with as well so we're doing our normal living like as well and this is trying to um you're trying to factor this in around it you know what i mean so um i think the, the the little break now hopefully for christmas will help everybody and it'll give them a chance to refocus and see what they want to do or where you know what I mean how they feel. Because I think they were all very upset on Tuesday. Yeah. You know, and uh, they just couldn't believe like it said, yeah, I think we felt just it was an insult. We were insulted. Do you know what I mean? Like if they had even said they set aside the three million and divided it out between the staff, it would have been, you know, a bit better than what had been offered in September. It would have been two million more. And we we'd have said, well, fair enough, you know,
2: and I suppose finally if I could if I could ask for listeners who might want to extend their support or or how, how would you how would you suggest they, they do that?
3: Well, people are sort of supporting us anyway, like you know, they're coming along and they do give you their support. So um, you know, we appreciate that and they continue to do that, you know what I mean? I I think sometimes you, you're worried that when you're there so long. You know and um, maybe people will say oh god they're still there you know but that's not what it is they're coming along and they do give you the support i actually have to say that on um wednesday after it broke and um, about and um, the offer that the government made and um, a lot of the public came along and they were angry too they were angry for us you know and that's great to see you know so you know that's, that's as much as they can do is just keep giving that support for us. I would say to other workers as well, if you don't mind me saying that, you know, you need to they need to and um, stand up for themselves as well. They have to remember it is us now, but it could be them. And you know, we have the situation unfortunately now with um, uh, the Arcadia group, like they're facing into what we're facing, we, we faced, do you know what I mean? So, like. Lobby your TDs. Let them know you're not happy. If they could all do that, it would be great. Do you know what I mean? Because they're the ones, unfortunately, that are holding the power. So um, lobby them. Let them know you're just not happy. And, um, you know, stand up for ourselves. You have to stand up for yourselves, you know? I, I firmly believe as well, you know, I know sometimes people might say, oh, God, look, I just couldn't be bothered. I'll move on with my life and whatever. But all... Um, of what we enjoy now, if you want to put it that way, for workers' rights, was fought by somebody else prior to us. So work, workers' rights, um, that's the one thing we have achieved. It's back on the agenda. You know what I mean? We have pushed it out there, that workers' rights, especially in a liquidation, it, it's not good enough. It's just not good enough. And that um, we we have to fight for that and we have to stand up for ourselves because if you don't, nothing ever changes. So I feel even that we've achieved that much. So to try and push through and get the Duffy Cal report true. through, because um, they should have done that four years ago. You know, that's where the yes. government definitely left us down, uh, workers in general. That should have been put through four years ago and we wouldn't have ended up in the situation that we're in. So if we can even get that done, in whatever way, then at least workers coming after us mightn't end up in the same situation as us, you know. And, and I'd just like to say another thing while I'm talking about it, is Arcadia are facing into it as well, you know, I understand that. But they were given the option to wind down their business in an orderly fashion, right? So they will be staying in work on to March of next year or two wind down that business, sell off the stock or whatever. You know what I mean? Now I know they know they're going to lose their jobs and then, but they still have a chance that maybe somebody might come up and maybe offer to take it over. I know there was talks with different groups that might be interested. We weren't given that option. We were effectively locked out of our premises. That's what happened. They closed those doors and never opened them again. We were not given the option to do anything that was normal in an liquidation. Do you know what I'm saying? So it, it's difficult. Even Debenhams in England now going into liquidation, they were given the same option. You know, they can wind down their business orderly and whatever. We just weren't. All our stuff is still inside in those stores. We we didn't get an option to clear out our lockers. We didn't get an option to take anything. We went home thinking a few weeks later when the lockdown was over, we'd be back in work. So we were technically, in my opinion, locked out of those premises. They locked us out and that's it and walked away. And unfortunately, our government gave them that facility to do that, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, listen, thanks so much for taking the time
3: uh, to talk
2: yeah. to us, um, Michelle. And I'm sorry for all you've gone through and we, we extend our solidarity.
3: Yeah. No, no, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Look, I know in the times we're in um, with people, you know, with the coronavirus, it's very hard. And people have lost their lives and people have lost loved ones and it's very difficult. Do you know what I mean? And I suppose when you look at it in those contexts, what we're going through, whilst it's hard, you know, it puts it into a small bit of perspective, but it still was a life changing experience for us as well, you know. So in that context, I suppose, look, it is very difficult, but, you know, life is hard sometimes, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> so, thanks for having
2: me on. I appreciate it. That's all. Thank you. Okay.
3: Take care now.
2: That's it from us this week and indeed this year. We'll be back the weekend of the 9th of January. If you want to get in touch with us, it's a view from the ditch at gmail.com. I just want to thank our two guests today, Mary and Michelle. I also want to thank Suzanne Sherry and also Irla and Natalie for our theme
0: music. To
2: rest Thanks for listening.
0: On Mary's lap is sleeping whom angels greet with anthems sweet While shepherds their watch are keeping This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. He's haste, haste to bring him Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate, where rocks and as our feeding Good Christians fear For sinners hear A silent word